All right, Kim, this is your reminder. You're supposed to press the record button. Thank you. You get an A. I already did, though. <laughs> but now I'm not worried if there's a fire. <laughs> oh, you better. Oops. Peg is saying I should unmute people. I just okay. did myself. And does, uh, does anyone need the book shared? Everyone has the book. Okay. <laughs> but I don't know where we are. We're on page 75, right after that quote. Right after, ah, uh, right, okay. After, after Samyutta Nikaya. Okay, if people are ready, I'll start. Yes. The Buddha approved of this wise answer. Indeed, those mountains of destruction are rumbling toward all of us, and our safety lies not in fluttering about, but in keeping our dignity and devoting ourselves faithfully to the path. The Buddha taught that diligent practitioners of the Dhamma can bring gladness into their lives and can free themselves from suffering, can triumphantly transcend the round of birth, aging, illness, and death. How long it will take, nobody can say, but we have the comfort of knowing that the Dhamma has beneficial calming effects that can be studied and understood right in the present moment. We do not have to look further than our own minds and bodies to avail ourselves of encouraging insight. The old, who have studied long and confirmed the Buddha's words in their own abundant experience, reap a deserved confidence. The young also, robust and smooth-browed, bless themselves when they sense the seething of the change beneath all forms and begin the quest for peace. And hope belongs to those who, at any age, reflect on the Dhamma and turn their faces towards its heartening light. The Buddha teaches that all phenomena of the world bear the characteristics of impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and impersonality or non-self. Thus our fears and sorrows, even the pains of age, cannot be considered unique or lasting. Rather, they can be made use of, be mined for wisdom by means of contemplation. Are we looking for instruction? Do we hope for guidance? Emblems of, tr emblems of truth surround us. Divine messengers still visit our neighborhood. This gray hair newly discovered in our comb, how divinely it preaches. If we stand hushed for a minute out of our hectic time, see the hair undulate and sway to our breath, gray, silver, white, catching the light and releasing it. Old age, tracing on air, the brilliance of the Dhamma. Might it not call forth in us some gleam of insight, some bloom of confidence that a sage of times long past once saw the whole light and out of measureless compassion spoke truth? Should I go next and then yes. go after Anne the next time? Okay. Uh, I'm sorry. That's okay, Clark. Um, youth departs and age arrives, but age too passes, 
and death as well, and birth again, and the spinning of generations. We run our imagination over the great wheel and find no end. Why, if not for the sake of our freedom, did the Buddha ever open his lips and speak? Might we not get free of wheels entirely? Still, we hold some life in our bodies and light in our minds. Call it youth or call it age. Today is the moment when we must do what is needful. Chapter 9, Renunciation. Among followers of the Buddha, there has historically been a sharp line of division between those living as householders and those who have renounced the world to take up the career of a monk or nun. Now that Buddhism has arrived in the West and been adopted by a fair number of people, that line is sometimes called into question. Should the formal distinctions between ordained and lay people still be maintained and observed? Or do new conditions require new definitions of religious vocations? What is the special meaning or value of renunciation? The monastic or renunciative style of life was already being practiced at the time of the Buddha. And it was to this that he turned when he became disenchanted with the futile repetition of ignorance and unsatisfactoriness that every day of every that everyday existence, even for a prince, seemed to entail. Seeing himself still subject to old age, sickness, and death, he could find no fulfillment in pursuing what was also subject to those conditions. So he decided to search instead for the highest good, nibbana. The disillusioned prince renounced his kingdom and undertook the ascetic way of living, determined to find, find a way out of all suffering. We don't have Jeannie, so maybe you better go ahead, Kim, and then Jeannie can... In his journeys, he encountered other ascetics who embraced a variety of doctrines that generally shared the beliefs that life as a householder was too crowded with passions, business, and duties to allow maximum religious development, and that the surest way to enlightenment lay in simplicity, self-denial, and homelessness. These wanderers subsisted on alms, on the donation of food, clothing, medicine, and shelter given by lay people who admired them, despite their position outside of institutional religion for their asceticism and pursued wisdom. Though their livelihood was precarious, they enjoyed a freedom from worldly responsibility that was especially advantageous for ardent seekers. So go ahead, Janie, because we, we um, skipped over you. And Donna, did Donna go? <clears throat> Sorry, I have to get up a few times. Um, okay, when after years of austerity and austerities and meditation, the former prince at last achieved perfect enlightenment and became the Buddha. He did not return to the lay life, but rather established and shaped the Sangha, the order of monks, bhikkhus, and later also of nuns, bhikkhunis, as a community of world-renouncing ascetics bound together both by Dhamma and by a code of discipline, the Vinaya, 
his disciples were expected to avoid entanglements in the world and cherish, cherish, cherish seclusion. They were to discipline their thoughts, words, and deeds so as to apprehend the sublime truths of Dhamma for their own liberation and for the instruction of others. The renunciative pattern had been tried and found worthy, but the Buddha carefully codified it as occasions arose so that those who came after him would have a clear and safe path to follow. At the same time, he taught his his disciples the principles of good conduct that would protect them, lead them to fortunate rebirth, and lift their minds to higher teachings. These principles were not different from what he taught the monks, only on a more basic level suited to those who were unable to break with the world and undertake the way of religious homelessness. The lay life and the monastic life obviously differed in customs and outward conduct, but monks and nuns and informed lay followers were engaged in the same course of practice, the eight, that noble eightfold path, right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. There was no doubt that the career of renunciation was the more direct route to enlightenment, but the accomplishments of lay disciples could and sometimes equal those of monks. They should notice, moreover, that although the Buddha lived the harmless life, he did not see the aim of the monk as an utter retreat from his fellow men. The rule of the Sangha ensure that monks could have regular contact with the laity, if only to receive the daily alms food and to inspire the laity to give this food to Sangha had to behave with decorum and dignity. Furthermore, the Buddha told his first fully enlightened disciples to wander abroad for the benefit and welfare of all beings teaching the Dharma and bringing encouragement and inspiration to the confused and unhappy. Throughout the centuries, down to our own day, the triple gem of Buddhism has consisted of the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha, three objects for veneration, three spiritual refuges. There are actually two kinds of Sangha, and the one meant here is the Ariya Sangha, the community of noble disciples who have attained to one or more of the stages of sainthood. There are four of these stages. The first is that of the stream enterer, uh, Satapana, who has completely destroyed the first three of the ten fetters that bind beings to birth and death. Belief in an enduring personality or self skeptical doubt about the teaching, and attachment to rites and rituals. Because of this attainment, he or she can no longer take birth in the lower, um, miserable planes of existence and is assured of reaching full liberation in no more than seven future births. The second stage is that of the once-returner, Sakagandami who has succeeded in weakening greed, hatred, and delusion, and who will return to the human plane 
only once more before making a complete end of suffering. The third stage is that of the non-returner, Anagami, who has completely broken the fourth and fifth fetters, sensuous craving and ill will, and is destined for birth in a higher plane of existence, there to achieve ultimate enlightenment. At the fourth and highest level of attainment stands the Holy One, the Arahant, who has completed the path, realized Nibbana, by breaking the last five, last five fetters, craving for fine material or rarefied existence, craving for immaterial existence, conceit, restlessness, and ignorance. The Arahant lives out his or her life in serenity, and at the final breaking down of the body, he or she escapes from the mental and the material entirely, going beyond all concept or imagination, free from, free from all future birth and death. The other kind of Sangha is the Samuti Sangha, the order of ordained monks and nuns, which has served as the caretaker and preserver of the teaching and, at its best, as the visible embodiment of Buddhist ideals. The ordination, the ordination, the ordination lineage of Theravadan, Theravada Buddhist nuns was lost many centuries ago for unknown reasons. But there exist today communities of modern Theravada nuns who follow eight or ten basic rules. The ordination lineage of monks, meanwhile, has survived to the present day, and branches of it are to be found throughout the world. Monks must follow 227 basic precepts of morality and proper monastic conduct, along with numerous rules and procedures for the maintenance of their communal life. They are expected to put into practice the original doctrine of the Buddha through their own renunciation, study, and meditation. So, Peg, haven't the um, uh, the the Theravadan nuns weren't they able somehow to um, somehow renew that renew you know their their vinaya and yeah. their uh, sort of through China, yeah, Chinese nuns. So yeah. I mean, I think this book was written, yeah, ninety-eight. But so maybe things have changed since he wrote that. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Is it me? Uh, Ellen. Nowadays, the usefulness of this Sangha might be questioned. Is it really necessary to leave the world, we might wonder. Can't we practice the Dhamma as lay people and householders without all the formality and restrictions that, monk, that monks undergo without renouncing so much? Is it really necessary to leave the world? That depends on what we want to accomplish and how intensively we want to practice. If we wish to live, live a virtuous life, train our minds and lay the groundwork for happy future lives, no, it is not absolutely necessary. An unfortunate, incorrect view, still widespread among Buddhists, is that only monks or exceptionally inspired lay people can 
or should practice meditation and attain great insight. On the contrary, the Dhamma, including the higher reaches of meditation, is available to and, pract and, and practicable by all, whatever their situation. Whoever makes intelligent effort can gain the benefits of clear-mindedness and equanimity. This cannot be emphasized enough, but it is also true that if one wishes to strive exclusively for liberation from samsara and has sufficient con conviction and opportunity, the best path remains that of renunciation. Though lay people can reach stages of sainthood, such success is especially difficult because the routine of a lay person overflows with distractions, worries, and mundane duties that make it hard to keep up steady bhavana or mental development. I might say that this also occurs in monasteries, so. <laughs> Just saying. <laughs> yeah. I know because I've been there. <laughs> oh, I have this this art test that when I go and see art, my final test in the end is, do I want to come home and make art or not? And and like my my Buddhist test here would be, do I want anything to do with this practice after reading it? <laughs> and the answer would be no. <laughs> A Buddhism certainly does not require anyone to renounce the world entirely. Rather, those who follow Buddhism with the aim of reducing present suffering may find that they are led naturally and gradually to more and more simplicity and renunciation in their everyday affairs. If they should go far enough, the homeless monastic life might begin to attract them. The world of commerce and social interchange forever shudders with craving and aversion with making, doing, dealing, and acquiring. It has little room or understanding for quietude, science, and cessation of passions. Hence, the need for the refuge offered by the Sangha. It is possible to live an ascetic, meditative life as a lay person. And this is a praiseworthy thing, but usually one will still have to work at a job <coughs> and stay involved in the business of lay society in many ways. And aside from material concerns, the Sangha offers invaluable tradition, teaching, discipline, and communal support to the practitioner. The rules and formalities of the Sangha, which seem daunting at first, actually promote polite social relations, freedom from remorse, and the orderly functioning of the order as a whole. Yeah. Only that were universally true. The lay Buddhist, the Sangha gives inspiration, instruction, and the opportunity to make merit through acts of faith and generosity. The sight of a well-practicing order, behaving with dignity, restraint and grace, intent on the training, lifts the heart and inspires confidence. Here is a visible fruit of the Buddha's word, still alive and fresh after all these centuries, still offering the precious Dhamma to cure the sickness of the world. Good mature monks have not only studied the Dhamma, but have spent years testing it and living in accordance with it, and can teach with an authority and an impact that books cannot equal. The layman can listen, ask questions, 
present problems, get advice, and learn how to meet troubles with the aid of Dhamma. As a materially dependent community, the Sangha gives the laity the chance to practice the primary virtue of giving. Although one's time might be consumed by work and family duties, although one might not be prepared to undertake systematic study or strict meditation oneself, one can still offer food or medicine or other necessities to those who have embarked on the monastic career. Such giving is a forerunner and concrete act, deeply satisfying, bringing immediate gladness and bringing future gladness too. In their relations with the Sangha, the lay people, though their generosity, faith, moral restraint, and meditative effort effectively protect and advance the whole Sangha, the Buddhist religion in its wide dimensions. In respecting and encouraging renunciation in others, one strengthens wholesome aspirations in oneself. Seeing good discipline, one is moved to emulate it. Hearing deep teaching, one forms the intention to experience it. Observing devotion, one looks to cultivate it within oneself. So it is that the formal renunciation of a relatively small number of benefits, many others, and benefits many others, and raises enlightenment as an ideal and an inspiration for all. Many Buddhists in recent years have tried to reconcile somewhat the social everyday world and the path to enlightenment reasoning correctly that the practice of meditation does not absolutely require silence or solitude or escape from society, and that practitioners can make genuine progress while living as householders in the midst of lay society. In this, there arises no contradiction to ancient tradition. Indeed, the appearance of lay meditation centers and the popularity of meditation courses are encouraging signs that the Dhamma is being taken seriously. But it would be wrong to assume that a few weekends or weeks of meditation each year, though these are fine for accomplishment, are fine accomplishments, are all that anyone can or should do to teach enlightenment, to reach enlightenment. Individuals differ in their spiritual interests, intentions, and energies. In any case, a meditatively inclined person must be prepared to recognize and discard bad habits and to realize that the good work will not be completed until the mind is fully purified. If we are new explorers of Buddhism, we might find much attraction in its meditation techniques, but rather less in those aspects of the Dhamma that run against the current of the world, such as advice to restrain the senses, to refrain from immoral conduct, and to avoid dissipating amusements. We indeed want enlightenment as long as the practice does not interfere too much with our established preferences. There is nothing very surprising about this partial approach to, the, to Buddhism, given the fragmentary and sometimes contradictory hunks of information that we might pick up. For the moment, relatively few monks are to be found in the West. Without experienced, qualified monks, never in abundance, as teachers and models of formal renunciation. 
and without a revered body of community and family tradition to learn from. We may, in our solitary investigations, get inaccurate ideas of what Buddhist monasticism is all about and what the advantages are of a formal system of self-discipline in religious practice. Buddhist monasticism as a living institution being so little known to society in the West, we might at first tend to view the Sangha as unimportant to religious life or see formal commitment to a monastic order as disagreeably restrictive or regard monks' rules as obsolete or outmoded. Modern industrial society promotes ideals of busyness and intense involvement in social affairs. So the monastic ideal of renunciation and uninvolvement appears very odd. The religious renouncer, who gladly consents to live under rules for his own betterment, might be seen as a gloomy fellow who incomprehensibly cuts himself off from the wonderful pleasures of life. Human beings are generally intent on enjoying things, and a doctrine that questions this enjoyment arouses puzzlement and discomfort in our minds, making it difficult to discern the plain and frugal path of life that leads to true happiness. But we cannot thoughtlessly indulge ourselves and climb spiritual peaks at the same time because the pursuit of pleasure weakens the self-restraint which is necessary for progress toward wisdom. While many pleasant, interesting, and agreeable things are to be found in the world, infatuation with them turns the individual away from the path of striving and in the long run ensures the repetition of suffering. The renouncer, whether an ordained monk or simply a lay practitioner who withdraws to some extent from the cacophony of society, does not want to experience an infinite string of empty excitements. It is not that he or she is unconscious of beauty or unaffected by pleasure, but that he or she suspects their inadequacy and hindering effect. Moreover, much of what people take to be pleasure is in fact suffering with sugary coating, which deceives and poisons the unwary. One remarkable aspect of Buddhist teaching, therefore, is that what we need to do is not to stuff ourselves with tasty experiences, not to acquire things, but rather get rid of them, to get rid of attachment, aversions, delusion, to discard the preoccupations, opinions, and defilements that prevent us from seeing things clearly. Renunciation helps us to accomplish this, even though the relatively simple rejection of excessive possessions, diversions, and entertainments under whose weight we have struggled so long. Renunciation begins in the midst of a householder's life with a thoughtful avoidance of superfluous objects, appetites, and activities, and develops naturally and gradually as one perceives the benefits of simplicity. How many of the possessions we surround ourselves with are really essential to our well-being? Would a new vacation house or automobile or sailboat really bring more satisfaction than trouble? Could a voluntary reduction in the number of our appointments, meetings, shows, and parties ease our minds a bit? Perhaps we could turn the television set off for an hour and meditate. Perhaps we could refrain from alcohol and intoxicating drugs 
and meet anxiety with mindfulness instead. Perhaps we do not really need or even enjoy all we think we do. To be sure, there is a delight and satisfaction to be found in the worldly life, and each person has to decide for himself what degree of activity is suitable for him and how far he wants to seek the quite different and higher satisfaction of renunciation. Because we harbor restless, conflicting ideas and feelings, we might both shun and admire the life of renunciation. Treasuring our attachments to possessions and amusements, we shrink from the idea of actually giving them up as far as from something oppressive and frightening. The existence of a few diligent ascetic practitioners provides a troubling contrast to this familiar sphere of material preoccupations and calls up confused emotions. It is tempting to dismiss the Sangha as irrelevant or unnecessary. In these exciting modern days, renunciation and, and adherence to an ancient discipline might seem absurd and contrary to our cultural standards of self-expression and exuberant external activity. But at the same time, thoughtful people remain respectful of renunciation and of those few who give up so much in pursuit of liberation. We may read stories of hermits and ascetics and their years of sacrifice and lonely struggle, and these may well appeal to our religious imagination. And to see or to meet those who actually devote themselves to that strenuous life of striving can be undeniably inspiring. Even in the monastic Sangha, there are not many such persons, but they do exist. Those who renounce the world in this way may be useless to the material ends of society, and yet in service to a higher purpose, they carry on and keep alive the purest hope of humanity. Maybe I'm next. If, I don't see yeah. Janie. Yeah, the Buddha renounced the world to go in search of enlightenment and having found it, stayed out of the circle of worldly society, having no wish to recover his position as a prince or to settle down in a domestic fashion. This is a very significant fact, <coughs> often overlooked. It indicates first what everyone probably suspects, suspects that mundane preoccupations tend to cramp the religious impulse. And second, that renunciation opens a way to happiness and freedom superior to the ordinary kinds. Still, in the Buddhist case, as probably in all human cases, the crucial renunciation is the mental one, the determined effort to get rid of wrong views and wrong habits not merely the physical act of taking to the woods. Many people of conventional opinions probably look on renunciation for religious purposes as a bizarre rejection of valuable opportunities in life. Others of romantic temperament dream about being a saintly wanderer with an alms bowl, um, beatifically meditating in scenic spots with good weather. Both sorts misunderstand renunciation, which is a rational dis discipline, a kind of work that begins with the thoughtful household, householder and reaches its fulfillment 
not in the external dress of a monk or a nun, but in the mind purified and exalted by wisdom. Even for conformed Buddhist, ambivalence to renunciation is not likely to disappear soon. Part of it depends on the capricious nature of the mind and part depends on the character of the renouncing, renouncing persons who knows or hears about. The, those who strive toward the ideals of the Sangha, keeping the rules, patiently following in the footsteps of the Buddha, regardless of admiration or blame, tend to earn respect and confidence. Though we cannot help but be profoundly influenced by individuals we meet, both the good and the bad. We good do well to temper our enthusiasm and disappointments by remembering that few Buddhists, even few renouncers, consistently live up to the highest standards. I wanted to ask a question for Peg about this idea of renunciation. I mean, he seems to be talking specifically about worldly life. Um, and I know that I've heard different people talk about the act of renunciation in different ways that you renounce different things. What are your thoughts about that? Well, here he's talking about um, the very, very traditional view, the way of the elders. Um, so you give up the householder life and you go into monastic um, life and you, so for us in the Mahayana tradition, this is not the path. The path is, this is the path of liberating others. This is the path of becoming a shining example to others. Um, so this isn't, this isn't the way we would characterize it. And I don't think so much of renunciation as I think of relinquishing, which I like a little better um, because renunciation su suggests something, some painful separation from something that you enjoy or want to do, you know? And I think relinquishing is just recognizing um, those pleasures are ephemeral and they're not, um, they're not permanent. They're bound up often with suffering and they're not really worthy of being considered myself, right? So these three marks of existence. So for me, it's about recognizing the um, inherent dissatisfaction in the things that we think will bring us satisfaction. And, um, and so then there's a kind of surrender of that. It's, it's just not necessary, right? Um, that's not so much a willful giving up, which it seems like this, what he's talking about in this um, life, this homeless life, um, is a willful, intentional giving up of the pleasures of the world. Because it is a kind of, um, uh, to me, is a kind of Puritan view of practice. And what's never, what, you know, what I don't, I think that the this Theravadan approach doesn't go far enough. So yes, the Buddha got enlightened, but he didn't stop there. He turned around and taught, right? So that's the piece of it that's sort of missing from the Theravadan view, which is your goal is to keep purifying your mind until you're enlightened. And he taught everyone, not just monks too. He taught everyone. And, um, and he taught out of compassion or out of Anyakampa, 
out of care. So, um, so, so for me, their path stops part way. I don't like this idea that, that it's a rational turning, uh, renunciation. You know, and then what, what we keep reading is the Terragatha, the Terragatha nuns is, is, it's a fire that burns out. It's, it's something that happens much more naturally. Yeah, and I think that, um, you know, that's just another perspective. And here, you know, it really is a very um, male monk perspective that you're getting. This is his perspective, and he's trying to argue in favor of this kind of renunciation. Um, and explain it to people for whom it seems really alien and strange, right? So, um, yeah, so my thinking about it is what we relinquish are our attachments to the things that we imagine are gonna cause us pleasure, but don't, that actually don't have that on offer. You know, that's not actually what, there's no lasting satisfaction in them. So, um, but we, we still have this clinging, we still have this longing for them. Even though the pleasure's momentary, I mean, really momentary. Uh, so uh, so to, um, to see that all the way through and to see, oh, this actually, there's actually a deeper satisfaction that's available that I'm, I've missed, uh, this is a simple uh, mistake. I've missed, it's a, like a category error. You know, it's like, going to HEB to buy a ladder. It's like, it's just a category error. This can't provide the deep lasting satisfaction um, that I'm longing for, but that deep abiding satisfaction is available. All I have to do is let go of my misguided idea that this is going to provide that. So what Adyashanti calls an innocent mistake. You know, it's like the child who wants candy for breakfast. And you know that's not wholesome. That's not, that's not going to nourish them. Uh, but, it'll, you know, and so you realize, oh, okay. So that's, that's actually not, not going to help them. It's not going to be good for them. I guess this is probably the most prevalent view in Buddhism by numbers, what we're reading. Um. I think the Mahayana schools are larger, ultimately. Oh, really? I didn't know that. Yeah. Um, the, this Theravadan tradition is, is basically found in a few small, very tiny Southeast Asian nations. It's not prevalent in other places. So in China, in Tibet, in Japan, in Korea, it's Mahayana all the way. I see. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. So it's a, you know, and it's a very difficult concept for Americans who are really committed to their pleasures and their self-centered dreams, you know? So it's, it's, it's completely alien. It'll never be more than a tiny percentage of the population because we don't have a culture that really supports it. Like we don't have a culture of people of lay followers who are happy to provide food and medicine and clothing for people who want to do absolutely nothing in their view, right? So it's woven into those cultures and that's why those monks can be supported. It's hard to imagine. I mean, I know Bonte's out there with the Burmese forest monks and I'm imagining that the people who are supporting them are 
for the most part, uh, people from those cultures where they, they are. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, Clark's been there too. Yeah. Yeah. So in those countries, it's, it's all cultural, you know, um, it's woven throughout the entire cultural structure. So, uh, so I think it's very difficult here for Americans to get their minds around, not just the monastic way of living, but the lay, you know, population supporting it. You know, I was really struck this afternoon. I went out, I spent the day with my mom and she's almost 90 and she's, not as able as she once was and she doesn't get around as well and doesn't see or hear as well and I was conflicted when I was there and I got back to my house after my drive and I was sitting down and thinking ah I'm, I'm so pleased to be here I'm so happy I have such I'm so content and I realized I, I will be hurt. This, this won't last. This, this is here now, but that won't be how it is always. And if this is what I'm basing my pleasure on, it will be gone. I was really struck by that. Yeah. You start to really get the sense of the impermanence of everything. Yeah. I, I think that this uh, pandemic and all that we go through with it enhances that realization. I think it's been like that for me. Yeah, it really brings it to the forefront, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. It's sort of been in the background. You, you recognize it. it's sort of been floating around in the background, but I've been trying not to pay attention to it, you know. <laughs> but it brings it right to the foreground. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's go on. Uh, the difficulty of the direct path to enlightenment, however, is no reason to dismiss and deny it. Even if we ourselves are not prepared to follow it, we ought not to lull ourselves by thinking that we might be able to live simultaneously in the world and out of it perfectly enlightened, yet avidly pursuing worldly pleasures. We should rather recognize where we stand and try to make the most out of our circumstances, keeping Buddhist ideals before our minds, even as we carry out our ordinary duties. Ultimately, the difference between Sangha and laity must be recognized because it exists in fact as well as in theory. Most Buddhists remain tied to the world while some have cut their formal ties. The cutting of the other ties, the ties of craving and clinging, is the duty of both monk and layman. And in this sense, both kinds of Buddhists are or should be engaged in a religious vocation. But the ancient institution of the Sangha is pledged and best equipped to carry out the full requirements of the Dhamma. Because human life is short, and because Buddha appears only rarely to rediscover and teach the way of del to deliverance, 
And because no one has a guarantee of opportunities to learn and practice Dhamma in the future, there is no time to be lost. And for those who are truly prepared and determined, the course of monastic renunciation remains open. <clears throat> the Samuti Sangha, the ordinary mundane Sangha, which is large and diverse and far from perfect, does not constitute the ultimate refuge. It only grants the means, the discipline, the framework for the efforts of ardent pilgrims. The monastic path is a unique way of life, which reaches quite beyond temporal satisfactions. But it is not something that everyone will find possible, and the Buddha surely had no expectations that his listeners would leave their trades and homes in mass to become religious mendicants. He taught the Dhamma because he knew it would be for the happiness and welfare of all persons who paid attention. He established the Sangha to serve as the intermediate vehicle for some and the inspiring beacon for others. While the great majority of Buddhists have preferred to remain laypersons, the continued existence of this Sangha, and particularly of the small vanguard within it, reminds us of the beneficent Dhamma and points to Nibbana, our common goal, the release from our long travail. The enthusiasm nowadays for serious books on Dhamma, meditation courses, and religious retreats indicates the wish of many lay people to practice almost monastically for greater or lesser periods of time. It suggests that despite the frivolity of our society and our own weaknesses, many of us do respect the, the ideals of simplicity, celibacy, and mental striving and want to approach them as near as we can. As Buddhism grows in the modern world, Along with it has grown quietly an interest in more organized religious life, scriptural study, and system, uh, systematic meditation practice. Over time, such interest should ripen into the realization that the monastic sangha is integral to the religious life of Buddhist families and individuals. We need the warm sense of being connected through faith and graceful tradition to the compassionate sage the supremely enlightened Buddha. We need, for our own health and peace, the inspiration and the gladness that comes from respecting that which is worthy of respect. When we turn from hopeful imagination to the beaten down, dispirited world, when we think with dimming smile of the hard work ahead of us in combating craving, it is reassuring to know and to see that the institution into which the Buddha put his labor and his teaching remains alive, that the good discipline is not forgotten, that renunciation and simplicity can still be practiced. Where there is the resolve to, where there is the resolve to renounce what should be renounced, even in modest ways, there is the possibility of real progress toward freedom. If we practice the Dhamma faithfully right now in the household life, making use of opportunities as they appear, we will find ourselves better able to cope with the world as it is, to avoid its dangers, and to establish ourselves in a, on a good course. But whatever external circumstances may provide, our important duty is just to keep training and developing our own minds. All grasping is affliction. Tight and trembling though our thoughts may be, 
they need not stay so. We might yet, by mindful degrees, relax the baneful tension, let go of sorrow, renounce unworthy deeds, and discard the burdens of defilement until the grave weight is gone and our hands at last are empty and free. Chapter 10, The Life of Honor. To live as Buddhists, to apply Buddhist principles beneficially to daily affairs, we need to observe specific points of moral discipline and more. It is right for us to take care in following moral precepts and actively sympathizing with other living beings, but occasional grains of occasional occasional grains of virtue dropped on the earth do not by themselves build up an enduring noble character. There must be consistency in our work. There must also be a mortar of understanding, a will to bind the elements, and a faith in the beauty of the outcome. Buddhism teaches that human beings are imperfect, yet may become perfect by their own exertions, as long as those exertions are directed along the Noble Eightfold Path. In weighing our choices and distinguishing our duties in the hurly-burly of professional, social, and family life, we do well to remember honor, a sense of consistent integrity and devotion to right principles. The honorable man or woman is aware of his or her own spiritual growth, of how that growth might be stimulated, and conversely, of how that growth might be slowed or reversed by impure actions. One who is intent on his own welfare and the welfare of others should continually look at himself with mindfulness and reflect on his own shortcomings and his rightful task will not, will not and shortcomings in his rightful past still not completed. There is no one, the Buddha said, who does not hold himself dearer than anyone else in the world. Yet in taking care of ourselves. We can't quite hear you, Janie. Oh, you can't hear me? Mm -mm. No. Can you hear me now? Uh -oh. no. You can't hear little... me? Yeah, you have to get closer to your... Computer. I, I close to my computer. It's just really, no. really quiet. I don't, I don't know how to make it more of... Uh, how to make your volume. volume. Huh? You can turn up your volume. There's a button on the bottom. Well, I think I'm Janie's just at the top. Yeah, oh. it just did, but it was already pretty high. Well, that's if you stay, if you stay closer, then it's fine. Yeah. Right, wait, where was I? Uh, okay. Um, Yet in taking care of ourselves and wishing ourselves well, we are faced with a practical problem because simple gratification of our desires, the, mo the most obvious course, is not always possible. In the end, and anyway, does not make us happy, but rather tends to degrade us to acquisitiveness and frustration. Keep a calm mind and a resilient heart. We must, in all, in all our dealings with nature and society, be honorable. That is, we must be mindful of and faithful to that which is true and worthy, namely the Dhamma. Honor consists not just in carefully applying virtue or morality, sila, to all situations, but also in understanding and appreciating the ideal human beings we might become. This personal honor, an adopted standard 
independent of the praise or blame that society assigns, can sustain and console us through troubles, especially as what the world or our com companions call good may not be so. What do we do? What do we do in doubtful circumstances? Someone's got to turn something off, I think. What do we do in doubtful circumstances when we cannot call an explicit precept to mind, or if we can, are not sure how it might apply? How do we react when our, I wonder, do people hear another voice? Yeah. Yeah. Everybody mute except for whoever's reading. I think yeah. we're getting feedback maybe. Yeah. yeah. Okay, now I've lost where I am. Uh, what sentence am I, am I Oh, you can't talk. What do we do? What do we do in doubtful circumstances? Okay, now I have to find it. Do we go, are we in the sentence, do, do we go along with the general will and detach yourself from the proceedings? No, Kim, we're what? in the middle of the page. What do we do in doubtful circumstances? So yeah, I'm not. We're on page 90 in the middle so, of the none page. None of this uh, relates to me. Can you do a little search? Can you do a little search for some? Nobody proposes outright lies. Am I, is that the right paragraph? No, what do no. we do in doubtful circumstances when we cannot call an explicit precept to mind? I'm sorry. That's the uh, first line of the paragraph, Kim. Oh, okay. What do we do in doubtful circumstances? Okay, what, okay, I got it. Okay, what do we do in doubtful circumstances when we cannot call an explicit precept to mind? Or if we can, are we not sure how it might apply? How do we react when our companions behave badly or questionably and wish us to join them. Do we go along with the general will or detach ourselves from the proceedings? Let us think what might happen when our business or social dealings bring us into contact with those less scrupulous than we think ourselves to be. Suppose someone suggests gaining an advantage through some slight obscuring of the truth. <coughs> Perhaps a promise could be made with no intention of fulfilling it. Or suppose we consider withholding from a customer information, important information during a sale. Or maybe it is possible to rephrase a business report to distort the reality of a situation. Nobody proposes outright lies or theft, perhaps. Yet a sensitive person might worry that affairs are drifting toward the unethical. While everybody professes belief in ethical behavior, such belief likely amounts to very little unless backed by practical judgment, reverence for moral precepts, and a sense of honor. Okay, whoever's talking has to unmute themselves. Sorry. 
when the stain of dishonesty seeps into our business or social affairs or any activity, we would be wise to identify it and wipe it away at once, if possible, or to disassociate ourselves from the ugly environment. But under the pressure of circumstances and others' opinions, we might waver and rationalize and bend more than we would like in order not to give offense or become unpopular. So potent is the will of a group that with troubled conscience, we might be cowed into going along with what we hope is a minor and temporary evil. But each little retreat from principles, lamentably, makes the force of expediency harder to resist and mental development harder to accomplish. This doesn't Honda can prevent such. Oh, sorry, you want to say, something. say that that this this is like exactly what's going on now in in politics. The the you don't can you all hear me? Oh, okay. No, I was just going to say that what he's talking about right now is exactly what's going on in the GOP. <laughs> you know. They think that oh the 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 force of social um, you know ties and all of that you know you think oh if I just go along with this one unethical thing you know anyway that was just that, that's all I wanted to say. Honor can prevent such enfabling reduced because it gives God an ideal more precious than the opinion of our fellows. We can then disagree and withhold our consent when necessary because rejecting duplicity and dishonesty means heeding our own best aspirations, confirming our commitment to virtue. Seen in this light, even an artwork situation can become an occasion for self-improvement even though a particular course of action might not seem entirely or technically immoral if, it's if it provokes worrisome doubts or makes us feel uncomfortably close to error, we do wisely not to follow it because we value our personal honor. Thus, by abstaining or turning to a nobler cause, we can give force and reality to that honor. Uh, business, family life, social relations, no sphere of action escapes ambiguities, and we are daily tempted, urged, pushed towards deeds of doubtful quality. Mostly these do not involve complicity with others, but concern our desires and conscious only. Take the matter of petty pilfering. Suppose we're tempted to take without permission some items belonging to our place of work and not return them, miscellaneous supplies, tools, gadgets, appliances, etc. Our employer, we might reason, is rich and underpays us and anyhow will not miss the articles in question. These arguments conceivably could all be true, but would they really change the nature of our taking? Would we remove such articles openly or would we feel it necessary to conceal them? This is a telling point worth examining. Secretiveness should be an alarm bell for the conscious. 
Peg, you have to unmute. <laughs> you need to unmute. Sorry about that. Okay. Desires will move us precipitately if we let them, if we do not take a moment to remember our principles. How do we act, for instance, if our car hits and damages a parked car when its owner is nowhere to be seen? It would be very easy just to drive away. Should we? <clears throat> what does honor say? The sort of conduct we would condemn in others will not look any better in us. All of us have conflicting instincts for the noble and ignoble that bend our thoughts and that may be heeded or disregarded as we choose. Before we let nimble rationalizations dispose of a problem, we ought to attend to um, the club of desire and principle that goes on underneath, the clash of desire and principle that goes on underneath, so that we can name our motives plainly and act out of wisdom rather than habit. The mind, as we know, is slippery and subtle. So when we find it hard to reason point by point through a problem, it helps to ask ourselves, if this, what an, is this what an honorable person would do? Is this consistent with Buddhist principles? Will this act cause harm or benefit for others? Will it injure or protect my sense of honor and self-respect? Because every person considers his or her own welfare before all else, such reflections can encourage us to act rightly. <clears throat> Buddhism teaches that intentional action, comma, has consequences for the doer in this present life or the next life or some future life beyond that. This is the practical basis of Buddhist moral discipline. If a deed is bad by nature, if it erupts from the depths of greed, hatred, or delusion, then its effect upon the doer will tend to be equivalently bad, irrespective of his rationalizations. We must understand that mere opinions and self-justifying theories do not offset the results of our intentional, willful deeds by body, speech, or mind, which come to us sooner or later in the form of fortune or misfortune. We might tell ourselves that we are justified in committing a certain action. We might even enjoy the stout approval of our friends. But the true root of the action, wholesome or unwholesome, whether recognized or not, is what determines its potential for result. We are responsible for our, for our own deeds and we will receive the due results of those deeds. And understanding this fact is an important part of right view. But this process of comma should not be taken as any kind of rigid fate. We cannot predict that a particular deed will have just a particular outcome in the future because conditions are constantly shifting and because we are always performing fresh actions of varying quality that continually modify the stream of our own of our existence. Therefore, if we suffer regret and guilt over some wrong deed we have done, the right course is to resolve firmly not to act that way again and to devote ourselves more seriously to performing good and meritorious actions. The more good we perform, the cleaner the stream will flow. Virtue is an unfailing investment and protection, and we should pay attention to the volitional actions 
which will work for our merit over time and worry less about the disadvantages of acting according to morality here and now. For it is true that by keeping moral rules, we will sometimes incur hardships. It may very well cost us something to behave honorably. Other people may object to our interpretations of integrity and fair dealing, and personal relationships and jobs may become more difficult. Especially in times of hurry and pressure, we might be tempted to relax our discipline, finding it hard to carry on when we see much vexation and no immediate advantage. But just as a muscle grows strong with exercise, so health of mind increases when we act against difficulty and overcome it. Then, suddenly perhaps, we experience a sense of accomplishment that nourishes our further efforts to progress in the Dhamma. To adhere faithfully to the principles of the Noble Eightfold Path is not easy, but the existence, even within our own circle of, acquaint of acquaintance, perhaps, of a few fine people who give up personal advantage for honor should convince us that spiritual progress is not impossible, but within reach of those who will take moral discipline seriously and not despair at the first obstacle. Clearly, this requires individual in initiative as society at large tends toward expediency and sometimes distrust those who stand out through uprightness, even though it may not be their wish to stand out at all, but only to obey higher principles. You're muted, Janie. All right. Um, to adhere faithfully to the principles of the Noble Eight... Wait, is that where I am? I just lost my, my place. What, what is the what society label? What society labels as good or evil? Yeah, the next paragraph. Oh, what society labels as good or evil may or may not be so. Intentions and results must be examined strictly. We must be alert to who suffers, who benefits, and what we really intend beneath our protestations um, and decisions and actions, not relying casually on apparent public opinion as our teacher, not trying to pass off moral responsibility to others. The times change and fashions change, obliging the honorable person to seek always for principle beneath the fluctuations of circumstance. Our society increasingly condones, for example, euthanasia for very ill or debilitated people, a form of intentional killing that is definitely contrary to Buddhist teaching and whose seriousness is not at all diminished by the approval of the few or the many. What changes over time is not the essential quality of deeds, but the species of public delusion. To live a life of honor is to examine and to act on the basis of timeless Dhamma, which is universally beneficial and altogether superior to the rationalizations of the day. Wait, what's he talking about with the euthanasia? I don't, I'm a little confused by that. Why, why is he bringing, what is that? What is he ref talk, referring to? 
sounds like the saying the euthanasia is, although it, some people go along with it, it's it's against Buddhist. He's talking tradition. about changing principles. How how society's mores change, but um, the underlying Buddhist principles do not. But I didn't understand why how euthanasia came up here. I, I an example. Um, of how society has changed its views, changed its principles. So he's saying that euthanasia is invariably wrong and evil. And even though now some people say it's okay, if you look at these basic Buddhist principles, we know it's evil and bad and wrong. Well, it's, it's against, it's contrary to Buddhist teachings. Right. Well, what about our pets? We consistently euthanize our pets at some point. What, why is that okay? And I don't think he would make a distinction. He's not. But we as a society do. Yes. So that's what he's saying is you, um, in uh, Buddhist teachings, you rely on the underlying principles, despite whatever changes in society. Except I thought it was an appropriate response. I mean, that the way it That's is- That's the Mahayana tradition. Oh, okay, okay, okay. That would not, that, that would be actually heretical in the Theravadan tradition. What would be a, a appropriate response? Euthanasia? No, the... Um, Sorry. Who's on first? Oman <laughs> no, was asked, what is enlightenment? And, and oh. answered oh. an appropriate response. Oh, okay. That is not in the Theravadan tradition. Oh. Because, because they have so many... They, what, what's appropriate for them is something, there are 272 rules, <laughs> as opposed to what's appropriate. Well, that's, that's the vinya, that's the law of the monastic living. That's I know, right there. So that's a, not necessarily the same as what he's talking about is the underlying principles of the Buddha's teachings. Yeah, because okay. he's talking about society, the societal mores, not the monastic. The society's mores change. The fundamental principles of the Buddha's teachings are, are not changing. So he, he says it's a more reliable guide because it's not changeable. And yet the Mahayana, there's more space for things to, they're not necessarily right. perceived in that way right because the mahayana applies these the principles of existence to everything so impermanence is part of everything so yeah i'd say it's a it's a, this is the the straight up theravadan approach and would you say that there are Theravadins that don't agree with what he's presenting as the Buddhist? 
I have no idea, but I've, I've not had a chance to engage any Theravadins in this debate. So I have no idea whether this is universally shared. So do you consider the Insight Meditation Societies in the United States and across the globe Theravadin? Yeah. Yeah. They've adapted uh, to the culture in many ways, but they, they're in that tradition. They're in that forest monk tradition, and they're, um, they're not, um, I would say, the, you know, the distinguishing difference is, this, uh, is the vow, you know, the bodhisattva vow. It's not part of that tradition. Yeah. It's still about individual progress toward enlightenment, removing defilements. It's a self-improvement project until you become an arhat. And it's a self-improvement project you'll be engaged in lifetime after lifetime. He even used that term a few paragraphs ago about self-improvement. Yeah. So it and does, it would be one thing if everybody agreed on the rules, but I I wonder if that's the case. Well, they they don't really have to. The rules rules have been handed down. So this is um, in spiral dynamics terms. This is the um, straight up blue level view. Yeah, you know, it's just a straight up blue level view. There are rules. You follow the rules. There's a hierarchy. You follow the hierarchy. Um, you continue to make progress. You move up the ladder. Um, it's a yeah. It's a it's a it's a strong blue level view. So there's very little room for sort of ambiguity. That's right. It seems this would be a formula as a parent to have wild kids. <laughs> Quite possibly. Oh, but those kids would really rebel. That's what I mean. They'd be wild. They'd be wild. <laughs> yes, like, you know, fundamentalist preacher's kids. Preacher's kids. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. In order to distinguish good from evil, to act upon the good and to make progress toward enlightenment, we, we need to use, we need to make use of all the factors of the Noble Eightfold Path not just a selected few. The path can be divided into three groups, morality, concentration, and wisdom. The morality group consists of right speech, right action, and right livelihood. The concentration group consists of right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. The wisdom group consists of right view and right intention. The three groups and the eight factors support each other. They do not stand isolated. They are to be practiced together to put an end to suffering. In order to do this work, we need to maintain a clear conscience. In order to obtain that, we must stop doing unwholesome and evil actions. This means, as a prerequisite, restraining ourselves by moral rules. Why, you might wonder, must we concern ourselves with mere rules? 
shouldn't sincerity and good intentions be sufficient? Are we living just to be able to check off technical points on a list? Truly, Buddhist morality should not be a perfunctory operation, but a wakeful recognition of and respect for those qualities that actually help us and help others. But until we can attain enlightenment, our understanding will remain incomplete and subject to error. So we require explicit guidance from someone wiser than we are. The basic five precepts, which the Buddhist layman voluntarily undertakes out of confidence, are vital guideposts or boundary markers on the road to liberation. By refraining from killing, refraining from taking what is not given or stealing, refraining from sexual misconduct, refraining from false speech, and refraining from taking intoxicants, one gains safety and keeps to the open track where progress is possible. By refraining from killing, the practitioner benefits himself in two ways. He avoids the effects of the bad karma, uh, bad karma by causing injury and death to others, and he stimulates in himself the growth of compassion. Not curing, not taking life means exactly that. The precept does not apply just to human beings, but to animals as well. Small or large, love or unlove, the, the strict follower of this precept does not cure for food, for sport, for enmity, or for any other reason. It might be objected it might be objected that in a world crowded with human beings and animals getting in each other's way, it is inconvenient and difficult to keep this precept. Certainly this is true. All the precepts are inconvenient. All moral discipline requires control of our natural urges because these, those urges so often inflict harm on others and on ourselves. Deeds of willful killing and harming vary in their moral weight according to the various factors, such as the nature of the injury, the characteristics of the victim, the intentions of the doer of the deeds. But such deeds are all unwholesome and liable to produce bad results in the future. To abstain from killing and harming entails a healthy recognition of our freedom and responsibility in making a happy future. It requires effort, and the more conscientious that effort is, the better it will be for us and for all creatures around us. There may come a time when we will sorely need compassion. That could be now. The precept against taking what is not given applies not only to blatant theft or robbery, but also to all forms of dishonestly taking others' money or property. It includes all kinds of wrongful acquisition of what does not belong to oneself, whether accomplished by deceit, fraud, intimidation, or other means. Breaking into a house and carrying off the furniture is obviously theft, but so also is cheating a business customer or supplier out of a few dollars or a few cents. Borrowing with no intention of paying back, falsifying expense account reports, embezzling, all these and many more are reprehensible acts violating the principle of not stealing. Thus, the precept, when broadly applied, will not only forestall obvious legal and social trouble, 
but will also defend against corrupting tendencies and bolster one's sense of honor and respect for the ideals of purity and innocence. Moreover, reverence for this precept naturally finds expression in the outwardly directed virtue of giving, dana. Not only does the carefully practicing Buddhist refrain from taking what is not his, but he becomes more willing to bestow gifts and kindnesses on others. The precept consciously applied curbs selfishness and encourages the cultivation of wholesome and morally beneficial action. I'm sort of struck by the, all the characteristics that this man is applying to the good practitioner or the proper practitioner. And they seem to really reify a sense of self. Yes, totally. Honorable, your. That's right. You want to be the honorable self, the better self. Right. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, this is not the doctrine of no self. This is the doctrine of self-improvement. Do they have a concept of no self? Yes. Yeah, that's not what he's talking about here. Uh-huh. Clearly. The precept against sexual misconduct likewise has wide applications and benefits. The Buddha realistically understood that sexual drive as a particularly powerful form of craving and did not try either to deny its force or to romanticize it. Like all passions, it impedes meditation and the attainment of equanimity. It inflames and upsets the mind. Clearly, it is inconsistent with a career of renunciation. Thus, monks and nuns must train themselves in celibacy, and devout lay people as well have traditionally abstained from sexual indulgence on religious holidays and during periods of intensive meditation. For the layman, absorbed in the business of the world, the Buddha recommended a firm and realistic standard of discipline in sexual matters. Basically, refraining from sexual misconduct means refraining from adultery, unfaithfulness, and sexual license. It entails never committing deeds of sexual coercion, seduction, molestation, or other such indecent behavior. One who heeds this precept has no sexual relations with unsuitable persons, that is, with the wives or husbands of others, with engaged or betrothed persons, with children, with any helpless or unwilling parties, or with anyone else not competent or free to reject sexual attentions. Sexual relationships between independent unmarried people, provided they do not violate any of these points, are not prohibited by the precept. Although it is good to remember that heedless sexual indulgence leads to many sorts of misery and that desire by itself is not a reliable guide to what is good and suitable. A thoughtful reserve in sexual matters will do much to prevent future regret and will preserve integrity and self-respect. It will also promote the balance and calm so important in Buddhist practice. Reframing, no, refraining from false speech has applications beyond avoidance of gross lying. This precept, together with the principles of right speech, the third factor of the Noble Eightfold Path, requires a dedication to fair and mild speech 
and an avoidance of all kinds of speech expressing ill will, foolishness, and deception. Specifically, the practitioner must avoid lying in all its forms and also taking into account the broader principles of right speech. He or she should abstain from slanderous speech, abusive speech, and pointless silly chatter. Taken seriously, this discipline helps to strengthen mindfulness, solidify friendships, establish a good reputation, and awaken an appreciation of judicious speech, such as the Buddha himself employed and recommended. The fifth precept, refraining from taking alcoholic drinks and intoxicants that blur the mind, seems at first glance of minor significance, unrelated to weighty moral matters. Provided it is not carried too far, we might wonder what is wrong with drinking. This precept deserves respect because it defends the other precepts and specifically guards against attacks of diluted thinking. Alcohol and other mind-blurring drugs push away inhibitions, sabotage self-control, damage reputations, ruin health, and distort mental functions. Destructive craving and aversion can thus break out more easily in speech and action. Since the practice of Dhamma demands self-restraint and clear sight, it is good to respect this precept and abstain from intoxicating mind, mind unbalancing drinks, drugs, chemicals, etc. Like the other precepts, this one has a positive effect on those who honor it. It encourages and strengthens the larger effort to become, to overcome delusion, to confront life exactly as it is with mindfulness. Okay, and that's where we stop. Wait, I have a question about, about this one, about the mind-altering drugs. Uh-huh. So many uh, people in the 60s said that they, they uh, came to spirituality through these mind-altering through LSD and, and things like that. So does this, is, is that an exception? Or, I mean, I'm, I'm just wondering if uh, there, I don't know. I just, I've heard so many, a lot of spiritual. Well, there, there are many things that bring people to the spiritual path, including horrendous catastrophes in their lives, but that doesn't make catastrophes the path. So basically, whatever brought you into spiritual practice, it's pretty clear that taking drugs distorts your thinking. Once you're on this path, you don't want that kind of distortion. So I think that's what he's pointing to. Regardless how you got here, um, you know, maybe you had a catastrophic divorce. That doesn't mean, that means, you know, not necessarily means divorce is your, should be your practice. So, uh, so what he's saying is, if you want to be mindful, this is not a good route, drugs and alcohol. No, I agree. I just have heard some, a lot of spiritual teachers say that their minds were opened or people, and you know. Yeah. So. Yeah, there's a, whole, there's a whole school of thought about that, even in Buddhism, about psychotropic drugs being some sort of support for practice. I don't know anything about that. Mm -hmm. um, he's saying, no. Um, and that's that's his uh, that's his belief. And what he thinks the Buddha would, would is is teaching in that precept. Yeah. So. Yeah, we're we're continuing to learn more about the 
this perspective and how it's supported, um, which is the straight up Theravadan per perspective. Yeah. Okay. All right. See you next time. Bye, Thank you, Lily. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks Good for coming. Evening. It's really fun to hang out with you and, uh, and explore these books. I'm enjoying it so much. Thank you so much. Thank you, Peg. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.